1: of people in their 40s and 50s have both an aging parent and a child under the age of 21. Caring for people in multiple generations demands time, love, attention, and more. Welcome to Caught Between Generations with your host, Dr. Meryl Griff. Our program will bring you the information you need as a family caregiver for everyone for whom you care, with guest experts and resources to help you keep sane and organized. Now, here is Dr. Meryl Griff.
2: Welcome to Caught Between Generations. I hope you listened to our last Facebook Live and you have begun to reframe and have more positive thoughts that you express towards others and also to yourself. And actually, I know some of you began to do that because I heard from some of you this week that you have begun to change your attitude and think more positive um, about other people and also positive about yourself. So thank you for sharing that with me. That was really great. And I'm really, really proud of you. So, keep it up. So, Call Between Generations is all about trying to provide you with information that you need for all the people for whom you are caring. We try to be your kind of one stop shop because we know how busy and overwhelmed you are. So, today we're going to be discussing aspects of ADHD actually through the lifespan. So, we're going to begin talking about time management and developing a time sense with teens who have ADHD or just who have difficulties keeping organized, you know, getting out of bed in the morning, getting their homework done, and just all that frustrating stuff that we deal with with our teens. In the second half of the show, we'll be discovering how to keep your relationship or your marriage together when you're married to someone or in a relationship with another adult who actually has adult form, ADHD. So, once again, it's ADHD. Through the lifespan, we begin with Leslie Josel, who is the author of Teens and Time Management: A Parent's Guide to Helping Your Teen Succeed. Leslie is the founder of Order Out of Chaos, an organizing consulting firm. I'm sorry, firm specializing in student organization and chronic disorganization. She actually is a mother of a son who has ADHD, so she's actually lived through a lot of the issues that I'm sure many of you are living through. She conducts workshops internationally all over the world for parents and educator groups, and now we get to welcome her to Caught Between Generations. So welcome, Leslie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh thank you. So Leslie, I don't usually begin with tips. It's usually what we end with but yes. I found one of your techniques really really unique. I just loved it. So you recommend using analog clocks all over your house, including the bathroom <laughs> instead of digital clocks. Well, that's what it said. See I read it it said you, you barely read it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so why do you recommend that? Well, I definitely recommend. I read. I recommend analog clocks for every room in your home that your child spends time in. So, if your child doesn't spend much time, let's say, in your bedroom, you don't need one there. But and the bathroom, absolutely. In fact, I have sometimes say even two: one in the shower and one by the sink. But here's why. Um, We here's my motto. My motto is that we cannot expect our children or our teens to be able to manage time if they can't see it. We, and it's very difficult, if you really think about it, to see time. You know, it's not like we can hold time in our hands. So we have to try to make it as visual as possible for our children so that they can understand it and see it. And it's th- and time is three-dimensional. Time has a beginning to some. Time has an end. It has a forward. It has a back. Digital doesn't allow us to see the whole picture. It doesn't allow, to see, allow us to see you know it's 7:15 and when the you know when the big hand goes to the 30 of you're a little kid or or in 15 minutes we're going to be going to x we don't see the sweep of time so our children might be watching a tv show they get up they go text a friend get a drink go to the bathroom do whatever come back and they haven't seen time move and to me that is really the foundation of teaching somebody time management they have to be able to see time in order to understand how to gain a time sense to have time awareness and then ultimately be able to manage it
2: i think it's a great tip thank you you're so, very welcome uh, So one of the other things you talk about in the book is things that you don't want parents to do when they're trying to integrate your system that you're recommending and you've written about of time management into their daily lives. And I was very impressed with what you had to say because I think that, your words have application to other situations, to learning other new approaches, and trying to make changes in your life. So would you review some of the things you recommend parents don't do?
3: Sure. and I have to, But I have to preface it by saying that to know me and to know the type of speaker I am, the writer I am, the coach that I am, I'm very concrete in the sense that I give a ton of, ton of tips and tools. In fact, I call it my triple T's, tips, tools, and techniques. And I don't do it to overwhelm. I do it so that parents have, and students as well, have an arsenal. You know what I mean? They have just tons of things in their toolbox that they can basically throw up against the wall and see what sticks. So on that premise, I really feel that I did not want parents to go out and, well, the first thing is to stress because we do that a lot because we want everything for our children. So we want them to be better. We want them to do more. We want them to feel good. We just want, want, want. And and in a lot of ways in a positive. And so because I did that, I really didn't want them to feel Bad about themselves. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be giving all these tips and tools and then have them think, oh my goodness, I'm not doing everything or I'm not doing everything at once or I'm not doing enough or I'm not doing, or I'm doing everything wrong because they're not. They're, you know, they're doing what they can do and I just want to be that helpful friend that says, hey, here, here's a few more things for you to try. I also think one of the most important things that we have to realize as parents is things take consistency and they take patience and that's sometimes not the easiest thing to do. We know that some of us some of us do like a quick fix, like can I just get this solved already can I just do it three times and, and 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 have it be, you know, all better or all done? And unfortunately, when you're teaching something as brain-based as time management, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of patience. And what I always model it to is teaching your child how to get their seatbelt on. You know, I always ask parents, does your child put their seatbelt on by themselves? This is for obviously for a teen. And when they tell them, when they say to me, yes, I'm like, then they know how to build a habit, but they did it slowly. They did it by first, you modeling the behavior, then maybe you prompted the behavior, and then they were able to do it on their own. But it took time and it took patience, and I just want parents to feel that they do have time and patience to get there with some of these skills. You know, Leslie,
2: you bring up an interesting point I hadn't thought about before, and that is when we're trying um, as therapists and we're working with families to change behavior, I mean, one of the cautions we always give parents is that usually it gets worse. I mean, literally, it gets worse um, before it gets better because the child is resisting um, the change. Do you find the same thing happens with time management or that isn't relevant to the... teaching time I, management.
3: It it does. It definitely depends on your approach. It absolutely does. And I do discuss that in my book to some degree. It's look, we know that with anything. It's with teaching time management even teaching a child how to drive. I'm just coming up with things you do as a teen. It's, are you hitting them over the head with it? Or are you possibly suggesting it and saying, hey, I have a thought. Have you thought about this? Have you considered this? You know, I call it when I speak, I call it like the sneaky chef, how there are techniques where you can have a dialogue with your student or, you know, a conversation. And it's almost like you're slipping it in unbeknownst to them. You know what I mean? Whereas instead of saying, here's a time management tool I really want you to try, then you're going to get major pushback. But if you're asking questions, which I talk a lot about in my book, how to be a problem solver, or how to create a problem solver, is by asking the questions instead of you telling them, which we know gives teens a putting up the wall, you're stressing me out, please stop, if they say please, versus, hey, What's your plan to do that, you know, will I go deeper in this? But by asking the question, I think you might have less pushback because you're not really telling them, you're asking them what they're thinking.
2: You know actually you that was actually my next question and 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 I want to I want to I want to put it in a formal frame. So I mean what you're what you recommend is that we raise children who are problem solvers not direction followers. So I'd like you to explain that a little bit and talk about why it's so important.
3: Okay. And I'm going to frame it right back to our discussion. On time management, and I'm going to use me here. I, you know, I'm lucky that I do what I do both personally and professionally. I am a academic life coach for teens, you know, teens and college students with ADHD, but I'm also, as you pointed out, I'm also a mom of a, of a child who has ADHD as well. And what I found, and we know that all of these, well, maybe we don't all know, but time management, organization, they're all brain based. And so we all develop, you know, differently and on, you know, and on our own time clock. But what I found in my own home was I would come in and I would be the keeper of the clock and the calendar. I would be the one saying... You know, what are you doing? You need to leave in five minutes, grab your soccer bag, go to the front door. Robin's going to be there in a minute to get you. Come on, go grab your dance bag, go get your water bottle, get in the car. We're leaving in 10. And I was the one running around, harried and exhausted, while everyone else was just going, okay, sure, I'll just do whatever my mom says. So there was no learning going on. There was no behaviors being taught. There was no transferring of skill. It was just, here's what you need to do, here's what you need to take, and here's the time you need to do it. It was my time management brain that was getting a major workout, and nobody else's was. So what I started to do is I stopped, and granted, this doesn't, again, not a quick fix, and I had to make sure that I was meeting my my children and then ultimately my students where they, where they were, but I stopped saying, do you have your keys, do you have your calendar, do you have your knapsack, do you have your lunch, do you have your cell phone? Instead, I'm saying, what do you need to have with you to get out the door in the morning? What do you need to have with you to take with you to soccer practice? What time, if we have to be at soccer practice at 5 o'clock, do we need to leave the house? So what started to happen is my, my children and then again my students started to develop a root, you know, checklist, virtual, maybe in their heads and then ultimately on paper, or they started to get a time sense of how long things took them to do because they were actually owning what they had to do. So this
2: I, has a lot of implications for preparing kids to leave, to either go to mm-hmm. college or go out and find jobs and and live independently. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about the application to, uh, you know, when kids are away and they have to do this on their own?
3: Well, that's, well, here's my feeling, particularly with children with ADHD, because that's what we're really talking about. And interestingly enough... The book was not written just for children with ADHD. It was written for all able learners. It was written for everyone because everyone, again, comes to the table just by how old they are with maybe some type of time management, you know, deficit. I don't know where you land on that scale. But ultimately, my goal and the work that I do is to actually prepare students for that leap, meaning to take them out of the, out of the, you know, out of the home and out of that kind of, scaffolding and support and get them ready to go out on their own. Now, that doesn't mean that they can do everything on their own, but what I feel is probably the most important thing we can do is that type of questioning, is getting them to start answering the questions. So if I can say this to you, this is kind of how I pose it. I call it the waffle syndrome. And what I mean by that, and it's supposedly funny, is when you have that child, and it could be your 17-year-old, who's standing in the kitchen staring at the refrigerator, and he screams, where are the waffles? Mom or Dad, where would the waffles be? And usually one parent might say, oh, honey, the waffles are, you know, on the bottom shelf behind the ice cream. And the other parent might go, are you kidding me? You know, how, how long have you lived in the house? And you still don't know where the waffles are? And really, both answers are not the best. The best answer, again is a question, where would, where do you think waffles would be? It's fine, you know, <laughs> and even if you have a little kid, you can even be cute and say, if you were a waffle, where would you want to live?
2: But Okay, Leslie, I want yeah. you to hold that thought. Sure. about being about being a waffle and where would you live right. um, when I we come back point. I promise <laughs> <laughs> when we come back we're going to pick that up uh, we're talking to Leslie Josel teens and time management and when we come back we're going to hear more great tips and strategies for getting through the morning without hurting anyone and conflict free homework success and lots of ways to achieve your goals stay with us
4: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: At Sarah Care, we provide daytime activities in health related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com that's s-a-r-a-h care.com
0: it's time to experience radical well-being learn to nourish your heart body and mind manifest your power in the present and learn to live your life's infinite potential it's time to experience Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio with host Rochelle McLaughlin. Each week, you'll learn about essential skills and knowledge to help you discover and create your own experience of health and well being. And learn to be empowered to take bold and loving action toward manifesting the life you long for. Tune in every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific and 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel.
4: Your life. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at caughtbetweengenerations.com. Now, Back to the show.
2: Welcome back to quote Between Generations. I am Dr. Merle, and I'm here with Leslie Josel, author of Teens and Time Management, a parent's guide to helping your teens succeed. And we're having a great time with Leslie, and we're learning just lots and lots. Before the break, Leslie was talking about the importance of asking questions, and somewhere in there where we were talking about waffles. So let's continue, Leslie. All right.
3: The whole point the of me of with the whole waffle story ultimately comes down, to this. I just felt and I feel this way, by, by talking less and answering less and questioning more, you're basically in, you're you're compelling your children to, to to be engaged and to participate in what they're doing. You know, there's some ownership involved when you are not the one saying the waffles are behind the ice cream or here's what you need to pack in your backpack. So if your eye on the prize is getting your child ready to be able to go out in the world, whether it's to work or to, you know, or to go to school, having them be more engaged, having them be able to build in their head, you know, visual checklists or time sense, you know, it goes back to that whole like, you know, being able to, you know, model behavior and then prompt behavior and then actually be able to, you know, be able to do the behavior. And and if they're not engaged in it, if you're not asking questions and having them formulate the response and formulate their plan, then they're still going to be stuck in that, I just need someone to tell me what to do.
2: So let's talk about two situations where we tend as parents to to be on top of the kids. I mean, one of them is homework. So how yeah. would you apply that to homework strategies?
3: Okay. Well, again, it's going to really and I I want to frame this and I want to keep saying this. Um it's going to depend on where your child really falls in in all of this. So and I you know, we didn't talk about this and I think this is a really important point to make is I get asked the question probably the most um, from parents, and they'll say to me, my child is, pick an age, 16, 13, 18, they should be able to do. And I come back with, well, no, that's not really true. So you might have a a parent who says, well, my child's 13. They should be able to get up in the morning and out the door on their own. But if your child has ADHD, your child has executive dysfunction, we know that these are brain-based behaviors and that, Really, they're almost delayed about 30% in that behavior. So if your child has se- severe or significant time management deficiency, they're not going to be 13 in that deficiency. They're going to be 9. So how you're going to support a 9 year old is very different than how you would support a 13 year old. So even though we want to teach, our, you know, we want to teach our students, you know, wonderful homework skills and all of that, you're, you know, if your child is 13 but has a lot of time management issues or organizational issues, you might have to be involved a little more than you might think otherwise. And I think that's an important clarification to make so we don't feel everyone out there is just expecting, oh, my kid is 13, they should have to do their homework on their own. That being said, what I really feel works the most for homework, particularly with children that have ADHD, is really making it as like fun and engaging and active as possible And I talk a lot about that in my book about homework games, because there's that notion out there that our children should be sitting at a desk in the quiet and not get up until they're done. And unfortunately, that is very old school, that movement and switching subjects and listening to music and all of these, you know, very active, you know, things that surround us are actually beneficial for children to get homework done. So believe it or not, we want them to be moving around. We want them to be doing homework in different places. We want them to be not finishing one subject at a time. We want them to be listening to music if it works for them. All of those things put together, not every single one of them, but some of those tips and techniques really help a child to activate and get homework done and initiate. And, you know, again, depending on where your child's at, but those types of activities or that activeness, I call it like putting fun around the mundane, actually does help your child get homework done. What about
2: the problems of getting teens out of bed in the morning and getting them out the door Without a lot of screaming and yelling going yeah. on,
3: <laughs> um, you might have lived in my house when my kid was young. Oh no, um,
2: no, that was me.
3: That was me, actually. No, that I was me. Really... <laughs> um, when you, what do you mean? Like, what do I? Like, what do you want me to get? Because that's my feeling too. I, I mean, I'm. I feel like you have to pick your poison, as my mother used to say. Do you know what I mean? So you yeah, have to figure, you know, you did. You have to pick your poison. You have to figure out what it is. You, you know. What is the most important thing for you to be, you want your child to be doing? And I think you have to work on them one at a time. That's a really big point, too. It's like, remember the baby food thing where you would take baby food and like every, you know, only every three days would you introduce something new. So I think you have to get to the root of the problem first of what it is that is preventing maybe your child from getting up in the morning. What time are they going to bed at night? Are they getting enough sleep? But I mean... It depends, again, on where you fall. If you need to put alarm clocks all over the room, I would not put alarm clocks that have music or a snooze button. I would put them in places where your child physically has to get up. I'm a big believer in you always go forward. You never go back, which means once your child leaves their bedroom in the morning, that's it. Try to make their space in the morning as tiny as possible. So if you have a 13-year-old, they get their clothes the night before. If you have an upstairs-downstairs home, Those clothes come down the steps the night before. Same thing with a toothbrush, toothpaste, brush, whatever it is they need can live in the bathroom or next to, you know, next to the sink in the kitchen. We want to make their world in the morning tiny, particularly those children who have ADHD and might be very distracted because we want to move them through the morning as efficiently as possible. So I think we have Mm -hmm. to remember too that getting your child out the door in the morning is really our goal and not theirs. So we have to also be a little bit flexible. If your child wants to wear one shoe and not the other until they get in the car, what's the big deal? You know, if they want to eat their breakfast, you know, you know whatever, let them do it. The, the goal is just to have minimal, minimal arguing. Um, and so my feeling is try to make their world, and the, again, not knowing your kid out there, but my biggest tip is usually is try to make their world as small as possible in the morning to reduce the distraction.
2: It's interesting that you say that because actually the newest sleep research um, shows that teens go through a biochemical change um, where their internal clocks really change. And if they could sleep as in a natural state um, as they feel at that point, they would actually stay up later and sleep later in the morning. They would stay up later in the evening and sleep later in the morning. That that becomes their natural biological rhythm. Um, And what we do with school schedules just absolutely is disruptive to them. So it's something to just think about.
3: I didn't know that, obviously, but I can see it in my work, that I always say school should be 10 to 5. Yeah, right.
2: well, which would, which would work much better, uh, given what's actually going on. Um, mm-hmm. d- Leslie, we don't have a lot of time. I want to ask you, um, you know, about procrastination. So kids keep putting things off, and then, you know, we get panic, or we get uh, chaos, or we get drama, you know, and then we just come in and take charge of the situation. So what are your tips and suggestions for that?
3: Well, I have a lot of different things, well, but the biggest thing I want to say about procrastination is the biggest thing we know is that you really need to make whatever it is for your student, whatever they're, wherever, again, you have to meet them where they live, but you have to make that point of entry or that barrier to entry as, like, as non-existent as possible, Again, it goes back to like that sneaky chef where they don't even realize they've started their homework, but they have. You know how you sneak like zucchini in the brownies? It's the same type of principle. <laughs> so if your student, particularly those with ADHD, they get overwhelmed by how much they might have to do or the, you know, or the volume of what they have to do. So we want to get them started very, very small. One math problem, one sentence, one paragraph, whatever it is. Because usually what we find with procrastination is it's it's once we get you started, then we usually get a flow out of you. It's that getting started, that's the hardest. So can we start as small as possible? The other thing is to meet them where they live. What is it that, you know, what would? What kind of plan do you have? Does your child prefer to start with the easiest? Does your child want to start almost with the hardest thing? Really important to kind of sit down and make that plan or have them make a plan to understand what it is and where they should start. The other thing we have
2: to realize... I'm sorry? I'm sorry. We have two minutes left. So you want to, I'm sorry, finish that thought though.
3: No, I just, the other thing we have to remember is that procrastination is a funny thing. We do have children that we call functional procrastinators. So they might start a paper two or three days before it's due, but need that adrenaline, need that deadline to actually kick themselves into high gear and do a really rock star job. That's not procrastination. And I think Leslie, that's
2: an important- oh, I, I, I'm sorry. It's been no, great. No, I just we, we to say really- that's
3: an important point to make. I,
2: and it is. Thank you. Yeah, actually, you have a lot of very important <laughs> points. We need to have you back. Tell us, um, give us your contact information where people can buy your books and your uh, tools, such as sure. your academic planner.
3: Sure. So what the easiest thing is the name of our company is Order Out of Chaos, and our website is orderoochaos.com. And once they go on there, they can access everything, podcasts, interviews, products, webinars, newsletters, you name it. We have it.
2: Thank you so much, Leslie Giselle, author of What's the Deal with Teens and Time Management, A Parent's Guide to Helping Your Teen Succeed. Thank you so much. You gave us really a lot of valuable information. Thank you. Thank you for having me. When we return, we're going to be talking to Melissa Orlov, who's the author of The Couple's Guide to Thriving with ADHD. All right, we're going to be talking a little bit about romance, so stay with us.
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. How's your husband now that he can't quite take care of himself? Or how's your wife now that getting around isn't as easy as it used to be? You'd know if your spouse was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities, a full day of customized activities and their home by dinner and nursing care that's right there with them how's your spouse? Just fine. At SarahCare Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Try it for free. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at SarahCare. Addiction can affect our relationships, our families, our home and work lives, but most
0: importantly, ourselves. The recovery process can do wonders in the lives of people suffering
2: from active addiction and also for those that love them. It's not just 12-step programs, but so much more. Start by tuning in to Miracles in Recovery with host Ray Lynch, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Hope is in your corner.
1: There is a distinct connection between your physical health and your spiritual health. You would be surprised at how closely the two go hand in hand. By taking care of your body, you take care of your spirit. And it works the other way, too. Honor God with what He gave you. Listen for the Divine Wellness Academy radio program with Troy Izmir. Tune in live every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. And be inspired to use your body for God's glory.
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
2: Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. We do try to be your one-stop shop for information. So whether you're caring for children, grandchildren, adolescents, young adults, your spouse, your parents, that you can this is your one source for a lot of information. So at the beginning of the show, we were, talked to Leslie Josel, and we had a great talk about uh, ADHD teens and time management. And now we're joined by Melissa Orlov, who is the author of two award-winning books, The ADHD Effect on Marriage, and The Couple's Guide to Thriving with ADHD. Melissa is a marriage consultant who has helped ADHD-affected couples around the world, and she's helped them rebalance the relationships, and she's helped them how to learn how to thrive in the midst of one of the partners having ADHD. Welcome to Caught Between Generations, Melissa.
5: Thank you so much. So, Melissa, I th-
2: I think there's just a lot of confusion about ADHD, and I think people believe that it only affects children, and And when you think about it, I think what they think is it only affects children, and then what? It just goes away, but I don't think we think about it. So, are there actually many adults who have ADHD? Uh,
5: well, the answer to that is yes. Though so, interestingly, most of them actually don't know they have it. So. 70 to 80% of kids who have ADHD continue to have symptoms that impact them into their adulthood. So there are an awful lot of people who do have it. About 5% of adults have it. So that's a good number over 10 million people in the U.S. So it's, it's not a small number at all. Um, but about 80, 85% um, of adults who have it do not know that they have it. And it has a big impact when you don't know you have it and it's unmanaged.
2: So, what are the symptoms of ADHD in an an adult?
5: Well, so the number one symptom, people associate children and ADHD and they think of a hyperactive person, and there are adults who have hyperactivity, but in fact, the number one uh, symptom for uh, people who are adults who have ADHD is actually chronic distractibility. Um, But there are other issues that that, uh, ADHD adults have. Um, They have difficulty planning lots of times, uh, difficulty with memory. They tend to live very much in the present uh, rather than sort of thinking ahead or reflecting back on what's been happening to them and maybe learning from that. Uh, They tend to be procrastinators. They tend to not uh, be able to finish uh, projects that they start or else they're very good at at finishing uh, but not starting, like the procrastinators, et cetera. So there are other things, like uh, they tend to not be very good drivers, um, some of them. Um, Not everybody has all of these things, uh, but they have uh, many of them.
2: So does aging impact that at all? I mean, one of the things you talked about was just living in the present. I mean, how does aging impact the ADHD symptoms?
5: Well, so a number of different ways. Um, There are the physiological impacts. For example, um, women, uh, ADHD is about neurochemistry, actually. It's about having low levels of dopamine and, and, uh, uh, to a lesser degree, serotonins and things in your brain. Um, And that impacts how the brain functions. Uh, And um, so women, for example, as they age, if you're going through menopause um, and you have ADHD, your symptoms will get much worse because when the estrogen levels drop, Um, that's associated with creating dopamine, and so your dopamine levels drop. So that's one way. That's a physiological way. There are also ways that as you age and you go through different stages of life, your symptoms tend to get worse. For example, when you add children um, into a relationship, the logistical nature of having to take care of kids um, puts a lot of stress on a relationship and also means people don't get as much sleep. And both of those things contribute to ADHD symptoms showing up and becoming more severe. Um, And that's often when couples really start to struggle with ADHD. In fact, is when kids arrive, um, and uh, particularly if they don't know what's going on, it's a very confusing time.
2: So I'm I'm really interested now. So if if in many adults who have ADHD it's not diagnosed and they don't realize they have it. So how do they view themselves?
5: Well, so lots of times they actually they're so used to having the ADHD that um, that they may not realize it has an impact on other people, even though it um, usually does. Um, but they'll often um, think, well, gee. Um, You know, they may have low self-esteem without really even thinking about that so much. How come other people can do things so easily and it's so hard for me? And and that's internalized in a lot of different ways. Um, Gee, the world is sort of stacked against me or I never get a break or, you know, it wasn't my fault or whatever. Um, Sometimes, you know, they're really successful people. Uh, who, like my husband, who has ADHD, very successful man uh, in business, and, and he has struggles just in the relationship side of things. Um, and so, you know, you start to think, oh, well, it's my wife's fault that there's a problem uh, going on. So, so there's a, there are potentially self-image issues if you've had undiagnosed ADHD because things don't seem to work right and you're not quite sure why. For the person who's living with the person with ADHD, there are a lot of surprises that are unexpected, not the least of which is that your partner is so distracted from you all the time, you start to wonder if your partner cares about you.
2: So what are the other symptoms and not symptoms but issues that couples run into when one of them has ADHD?
5: Well, so there are some very, very predictable patterns and again, particularly if you don't know that the ADHD is there, you have no, you you can't figure out what's going on. So I'll give you some examples. Um, uh, what I call um, parent-child dynamics where um, the ADHD symptoms are there and a, and a person might say, for example, I'm going to go off and do XYZ chore, fully intending to do it, and then they might get distracted from it or they might forget to do it or they're too disorganized to do it or something else comes up, whatever it is, um, and they don't do it. And this happens over and over and over again. And, and uh, after a while, the other partner gets tired of that and starts saying, you know, will you do this, starts to nag them, take over the timing of a project, uh, push their partner. Um, sometimes uh, they, they'll they actually move from nagging into uh, uh, verbal abuse uh, over time. You know, why can't you ever do anything? Um, what's wrong with you? Those kinds of things. And so that's one pattern of a partner becoming more dominant and more organized and the other one being disorganized and, and be in a sort of a childlike role. Um, there are patterns uh, around chores and, and not getting chores done. There are patterns around... Uh, what I call symptom response response, where you have a symptom that shows up and then the partner misinterprets that symptom, like, as I mentioned before, distractibility, where uh, the, the person is so distracted they're not really paying much attention to their partner, and the partner starts to feel unloved or confused or angry, starts to express that, and then the ADHD partner starts to respond to that anger or that expression of you know being unloved or whatever, and they get into this downward spiral where... They're just talking to each other about the anger rather than about the original issue, which was the distractibility. Um, So there are things like that. These patterns are very um, predictable, and also, um, happily, once you know about them, you can change them quite dramatically and and change your relationship for the better.
2: So if I'm um, 50-something, well, actually, I am 50-something, um, and caring for both, and you know, parents and kids that are impacted by ADHD. I mean, and that seems to me and just an extraordinary issue that's overwhelming and difficult to run to really manage. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, do you see that a lot in your in what I, you do?
5: I do because ADHD is actually hereditary. Um, so you'll have uh, you know one of the parents has ADHD, or sometimes both of the parents have it. And then the grandparents, somebody in the grandparent string has it as well, though that's almost certainly undiagnosed. Um, but there are things going on there that they didn't realize. And then you've got a kid or two who has it. Um, the non-ADD partners who are sort of stuck in the middle of that feel as if everything depends upon them, that they are the only person uh, who knows how to keep things in order. It feels very chaotic for that person typically and the very Typical response to it then is to try to take more control. You have a sense that your life is about to blow apart. Essentially, that you know if you don't keep stuff in control, that everything is just going to be complete chaos all the time. Maybe the kids will get left at school by mistake, or you know something else will happen, and bills won't get paid, things like that. Um, it's very very stressful for that um, partner who is trying to keep things in order. And sadly, the response to that is that the other folks tend to say things like, why don't you just calm down? Why are you so controlling? Why are you so mad all the time? They don't appreciate the amount of effort that goes into it. So it can be a very thankless and very difficult place for um, a non-ADD partner in the middle of all these these things um, to be managing.
2: But what if, I am, what if I'm the primary caregiver and I have ADHD? I mean, how does that impact my ability um, to be a caregiver? That's a, that's a deep question. We only have about two minutes. So if you could answer it briefly, if possible, for me.
5: Okay. So it depends on the family dynamics, to be honest with you. So there's nothing about ADHD that would make you a bad parent. Um, but it does uh, imply that you'll have a, um, a more fluid parenting style. Um, So a little bit less on the getting from A to B directly or uh, specific kinds of rules or whatever. But again, there's nothing to say that that's not going to be a really great style for that family. Um, But it does mean that both parents would need to be in communication, which you would expect anyway. Um, The ADHD just means that there are certain kinds of topics that you need to talk about, um, different styles, et cetera, that are important.
2: Okay. When we return, we're going to be discussing some aspects of relationships that I actually think have relevance uh, for all of us. Um, and I think Melissa has great suggestions and tips, even if your partner does not have ADHD. They're very—they're outstanding if they do, but if they don't, I still think they're very relevant. So when we return, we're going to be talking um, about fighting, and we're going to be go back to what Melissa was referring to before. Uh, when she was talking about chores. Um, and we're going to discuss, can damage in your relationship ever be repaired? And then we're going to talk about a hyper courtship. So stay with us.
4: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: At Sarah Care, we provide daytime activities and health related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H care.com. Children with chronic conditions shouldn't have to just live with it. There are many alternative options that can reduce, reverse, or even eliminate the effects of chronic illness in our children. On Kids Health Revolution Radio with host Deborah Morgan, we'll explore these alternatives to help you take care of your children. It's time to take our kids' health back. Listen every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness.
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at caughtbetweengenerations.com. Now, back to the show.
2: Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. This is Dr. Merrill, and we're talking to Melissa Orlov, author of The ADHD Effect on Marriage and The Couple's Guide to Thriving with ADHD. So, Melissa, let's talk about fighting, okay? Um, You quote the research from John Gottman that says, it's not the frequency of your fighting that indicates the health of your marriage. So if it's not the frequency, then what is it?
5: Well, it's very much about how you repair from the fight um, and whether you choose to repair from the fight. Um, and when I work with couples uh, who have a lot of anger in their relationship, which is common when people are seeking counseling, um, I ask them first to sort of assess uh, what kind of fight they're having uh, and, you know, is it a fight where the people are getting completely flooded and emotionally overwhelmed and they have no ability to think logically or respond to each other logically at all? Or is it um, lower than that sort of ongoing battle, small battles, etc., cetera? Um, and sort of start to think about different kinds of fights. And then um, I talk, I work with them on trying to figure out, you know, what are some good ways to repair after a fight? and And John Gottman, I think, talks about it beautifully. He talks about offering um, and accepting bids for repair. Um, so an example of that is an apology, right? An apology is a bid for a repair. Somebody can say, gee, I'm really sorry that this happened. And that's, that's that bid. And then you have a choice to make, which is, do I accept the olive branch, which has just been given to me? Or do I say, well, too bad, you know, you shouldn't have done it in the first place and reject it. Um, and that's an example of, you know, is that couple going to be able to start to repair and forgive each other um, or are you going to choose to continue the battle um, and, not, and not do that? So that, though, not repairing is actually um, what is the harmful part about fighting. People disagree all the time and obviously you want to be respectful during a fight, but, um, but repairing is really critically important.
2: So, because um, people with ADHD have an issue with t- with time, can you delay uh, the repair, or or is that detrimental? So, for instance, could I say to my spouse who may have ADHD, you know, I I yeah, you're apologizing to me, and and I understand that, but I I just need a little bit of time to calm down and and think this through, or is that is that not a good suggestion?
5: Um, I think you can. So. So, you know, people um, who the ADHD person tends to live in the present, which one of the benefits of that is that they often don't hold a grudge. Um, uh, or, and don't hang on to things that are very emotional, even if it's not a grudge. Um, people who don't have ADD often sort of chew on things for a while and work through them, and, and people need to work through whatever the hurt is that they've had at their own speed. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't accept a, a, a repair bid, right? You can say, I, you know, I understand how sorry you are, and, and I and I agree with you. It's really unfortunate that this thing has happened, and I really just need some time to recover from it. That's that's still accepting that bit. It's also saying, so what I'm asking of you is a little bit more tenderness, a little bit more um, attention to me so that I can start to, uh, you know, the hurt is bigger than the individual instance. Um, And that's a perfectly legitimate request.
2: So when you make those kinds of requests, I mean, usually when I'm uh, doing workshops on, uh, with men and women, I, I always tell women we, we need to be more specific and concrete um, in our requests of men. Like, you know, I, I need your help, you know, getting ready for dinner. You know, people are coming over, and the next thing you know, they're cleaning up the garage because they thought that was a good idea. You know, so we need to be more specific and concrete with them. Does that apply to adults with ADHD? I mean, is there a way that we need to say, I want more tenderness or I need more attention that you would recommend?
5: Um, well, it does, and and there are lots of different ways. By the way, I don't want you to think that an apology is the only kind of repair you can do. Laughter is another kind for some in some situations, not always. There are lots of different ways, holding somebody's hand or you know other kinds of things. So there are other bids for repair. Um, in terms of being very specific and concrete, you certainly have to do that. You also have to understand that if the ADHD person isn't managing their ADHD very well, it doesn't have a system in place to stay on task with what you've asked them, they might still wander off. This is part of what ADHD is about. Part of the reason it's so important to get an evaluation and get that diagnosis and start thinking concretely about managing ADHD is that, um, is that things like just wandering off in mid-task or, you know, whatever, it's not meant to be offensive at all, and yet people take it really personally. Hey, I asked you to cut the carrots, and you still didn't cut the carrots, you know. So it's not, a specific, it's not just specificity, though that certainly helps. Um, it's also um, understanding that sometimes the ADHD is still going to get in the way. So
2: let's talk about a a very interesting concept you present in the book, which is hyper-focused courtship um, and how that often impacts the relationship um, in the marriage.
5: Well, it's a a really interesting thing. So the chemistry of love, in fact, the chemistry of infatuation is that um, when we are infatuated with someone we've just met them, our brains are flooded with dopamine. This is a sort of a biological imperative that keeps us attached to each other for a while, um, and so it just so happens that for people who have ADHD, um, this turns into sort of a hyper-focused thing. Um, I like to say, and I think it's quite true, you have not been courted until you have been courted by somebody who has ADHD <laughs> because they are completely focused on you, and so you just sort of expect that this is who this person is. Um, the, chemi- the dopamine remains, those high levels of dopamine remain about 24 to 28 months, something like that, and then they drop back off to the normal levels. So for people without ADHD, who also have this dopamine boost, by the way, they, you know, they go back to their sort of normal self. People who do have ADHD, though, go back to a low dopamine um, situation where the distractibility and the other things then start to show up. So a lot of people, um, you know, this courtship feels so good. A lot of people get married before the two years is up, so they've never met that other person. And when that person shows up in their relationship, it's a huge surprise. They haven't met that person before. They don't see that. They haven't seen the distracted um, uh, person um, in their relationship before. Um, and again, because people don't usually know about the ADHD, they misinterpret the distraction as, gee, my spouse suddenly doesn't um, uh, care about me anymore. What happened? Um, and it can be very um, upsetting um, so it's, a, it's really uh, an interesting sort of roller coaster, if you want to think about it, um, just incredible focus for a while, and then um, lack of focus, lack of follow-through, and other things that come with ADHD when it's not managed.
2: Leslie, this has been very, very interesting. Uh, Melissa, I'm, I really have enjoyed this. Um, can you give us your contact information and uh, website, other blogs, other information you'd like to share with us?
5: Um, I have my website at www.adhdmarriage.com, and it is a huge resource now. It's got online treatment information and my books and audio books. I also have, um, and people can contact me through that. I also give a seminar three times a year that um, is for couples impacted by ADHD, um, and it's very—it's a very good seminar. It's given by phone, so people can just call into the conference call to take the seminar, and I happen to be starting one of those um, soon, on October 13th, so um, that is a very good resource if you're interested in, in learning more.
2: And information on the uh, webinar or seminar, how would they find that out?
5: That's also at the website. So if you just go to www.adhdmarriage.com, um, you will find the seminar listed there. It's called The ADHD Effect In-Depth. It's an eight-week seminar, and it has helped a lot of couples turn their relationships around. So it's, that's, it's a very, very good resource.
2: That's great. But Melissa, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, once again, Melissa Orlov, O-R-L-O-V, and her book is The Couple's Guide to Thriving with ADHD. Thank you so much.
5: Thank you, Dr. Griff.
2: Thank you. I hope that you'll listen tomorrow to our Facebook Live. And as always, please continue to email me at Dr. Merrill at Caught Between Generations. I just love hearing from you. And as always, I ask you to do just one thing, just one thing for yourself this week. You need to take care of yourself in order to keep taking good care of everyone else in your life. So you need to do just that one thing. Could be just take a walk outdoors for just five minutes if that. That's all you have the time to do. But do that one thing for yourself. You know, it's like the Clairol commercial. Commercial, You're worth it. Take care.
1: Thank you for tuning in to Caught Between Generations with Dr. Mel Griff. Our program is live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time and 4 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to see you here next week.